Does anybody understand why I say the theme of this passage is believing? Jesus is in an argument with the religious leaders again, and, it's, and what is the argument turning over? It's their unwillingness to believe in him. I told you that believing is the theme. Let me show you why. Jesus answered their accusation. How long will you keep us in suspense? Another translation. Jesus, how long will you keep annoying us? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you. I already told you. And you don't what, did he say, church? You don't believe. The works that I've done, they bear witness about me, but you don't believe. And then he goes on to say, verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of Father, he's saying, listen, if I'm not doing the works of God, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, then you shouldn't believe me. But if I am, believe the works. Even if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then it ends with Jesus moving on to another location, which is where John the Baptist was baptizing. He leaves this argument with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He goes to the place where John the Baptist was baptizing, and it says at that point, many believed in him. Belief is what bookends, what brackets this entire section. This is about belief. Now, let me just back up and say, John uses these feasts. We know that the setting, it says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication. John doesn't say, doesn't give us time the way we think of time. He actually creates chronological order by telling us the story based on the Jewish calendar of feasts. If you remember right, we've been in a, we've been, Jesus has been teaching during a feast, but it's not the feast of dedication. Does anybody remember what it's been? Feast of tabernacles. That's right, he's been teaching and preaching during the Feast of Tabernacles. This is not during the Feast of Tabernacles. So some time has gone on. This is the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and we're told it's in the winter, so it's colder. The Feast of Dedication you won't find in the Old Testament. You can go searching for it. You won't find it. Why? Because it was a newer feast established between the time period of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Check this out, though. This is interesting. Around 167 B.C., a Syrian named Antiochus Epiphanes, he was an emperor, he conquered in Israel and Jerusalem, and he wanted to establish uniformity of worship. So he desecrated the Jews' temple by placing in it an altar dedicated to Zeus. And this was appalling to the Jews. He desecrated their temple. He was trying to bring these religions together. But a brave leader that maybe you've heard of in history, if you're Catholic, you've definitely heard of him, 
Judas Maccabeus, the book of Maccabees, which is not canonical in terms of it's not included in the canon, but in, in the Catholic Bible, First and Second Maccabees is included. Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the Syrians three years later, or during that time period, he led a revolt, and he beat them. He beat them back and took control of the country and the city of Jerusalem once again. And because of his victory, he cleared out that altar to Zeus, restored the temple, and then they established a feast, a feast of dedication. It goes on for eight days. It's also known as the Feast or Festival of Lights. It's an eight-day celebration, still celebrated today, known as Hanukkah. Around the time of Christmas is when this took place. It's about three months from where we last were in the gospel. Does that help? I hope it helps. So we see, though, that this, this whole argument that he's having with the religious leaders is taking place during the Feast of Dedication, and it's turning on this idea of belief. John, just as Isaac said, he presents us with Jesus, and then he asks, do you believe? He gives us Jesus, and then he says, do you believe in him? Not just some easy believism to get yourself saved, but has your belief in him, has your trust in him, has your confidence in him changed the direction of your life? Are you believing in such a way that it would look like I am banking on this, like I'm sliding all my chips onto that side of the table. I'm saying that I'm all in on who Jesus is. He's called me. I'm following him. My life is not my own. My life belongs to him, and I'm satisfied in him, and I want to follow him the rest of my, my days. That's what belief is. Are you banking on Jesus to save you, to satisfy you, to sanctify you, to support you, to shepherd you? That's what John's calling belief. You've got to believe Jesus in this way. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe in Jesus in this way? Do you believe that he is the door through which you must enter in order to be saved? Do you believe Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which includes yours? Do you believe that the one who drinks of Jesus' living water will never, ever, ever thirst? Do you believe that Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our deep hunger for meaning and purpose, which is found in Him? John wants to reason with you over this. The entire Bible actually wants to reason with you over this. Wants to argue with you. There's a section of the Bible, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Isaiah 1.18, that says, where the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Let us argue together. Though your sins be as scarlet, 
they shall be as white as snow. Anybody want to argue with God over that? You want to reason with God? He welcomes you into a reasoning where he could show you that the whole Bible is about you being a sinner that's rebelled against him and the way he's made for you to be washed clean. But we got to wrestle with these things. we gotta, we got to get down deep and argue with ourselves over what we really believe. C.S. Lewis talks about the strengths of what we believe, of, of our beliefs being tested. All that we believe, you ultimately are living out of something that you believe. You might not know what it is, but you are living out of something that you believe. C.S. Lewis says, though, that you never really know how much you really believe anything until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. So we got to test our beliefs to see if they hold up. It's easy to believe if I were to hand you a rope and I said, here, just take this rope and uh, use it to secure that box to get, to get it from here to home. That takes a certain amount of confidence that the rope, whatever it's holding, will get the box tied up and make it home 10 minutes from here. But if I said to you, now, that same rope, I want you to jump over the side of a cliff, and I'm going to hold on to you with that rope. Or I'm going to tie it off onto a tree and you're going to hang there until you can climb back up. Which one are you going to put the rope through a little more testing? Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? So I'm asking you and John's asking you, Whatever you believe in, do you really trust it? Have you put it through the test? That's what Sundays are an opportunity to do. That's what God's inviting us to do right now, is to take our belief in Jesus, or or take our belief into whatever it is that we're believing, and, and test it. Make it a matter of life and death. Is that belief gonna hold you when it becomes a matter of life and death? we got to put our beliefs to the test, fam. Now, who is Jesus being, who's he arguing with? He's arguing with the leaders, and the debate that he's having builds around two titles. They're arguing over, they ask him, are you the Christ? Another translation, Messiah, Savior. Are you the Savior? Tell us plainly. And then he gets into an argument with them over I and the Father are one, that I am the Son of God. So there's this debate taking place over these two titles. Just some thoughts on this that I think will be helpful. Messiah, the Christ, Savior. Jesus does seem to be evasive as it relates to that title. He doesn't use that title, except when he's like, alone with the disciples. It's the only time he uses Messiah. He's not being evasive, though, to escape personal consequence. He's on his way to the cross. 
Why is he so hesitant to use the word Messiah? He's hesitant because of how it's misunderstood. They think Messiah means something. So if we ever lived in a time where you got to say, define your terms. <laughs> you know, people be talking like this. I didn't mean, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't mean what you thought I meant when I used that term. Happens to me all the time. You guys are processing me through a certain lens. Sometimes I say something, you think I mean something, but I don't mean it. Sometimes you think I don't mean something, and I do mean it. Jesus won't use the, the, the language of Messiah because the popular view was that the Messiah was a warrior type king who would come. He was a political king. He would come and drive the hated Romans out of the land like Judas Maccabeus. Like that. That's what they wanted him to be. But Jesus never intended to be a political Messiah. He intends to be way more than that. He understood the office of Messiah as merging with the Old Testament idea of the suffering servant of the Lord, which is what Isaiah speaks of. It's a great picture of Jesus. You read Isaiah 53, and there's this picture of the suffering servant of the Lord who suffers for his people. But the people that Jesus is arguing with have no concept of this. They, 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 they misread their Bibles on this. They don't understand this. And so Jesus was guarded about using the term Messiah. The Jewish leaders weren't ready to believe in a Savior that would suffer and die. They had another way that they were going to be saved. They didn't need a Savior like that. We're going we're to obey God and our works and our obedience will earn us salvation. Now Jesus knew that earning your salvation was impossible. So the question for us is, are you trying to save yourself through your own decency? It won't work. You need a Savior. You need to put your trust in Him, the Messiah, the Savior. So the question for us is, have you done that? Have you put your trust in Jesus? You need a Savior outside of yourself. You could never get to God on your own. God had to come get you. So that's Messiah. Let's talk just about Son of God for a minute. Things really get agitated. When you look at verse 29, it says, Jesus says, I and the Father, actually it's verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Man, that really agitates them. How do we know it agitates them? What do they do? They start looking for rocks. We gotta kill this guy. Jesus is saying, that he's one in essence with the Father, and the Holy Spirit would be included as well. God in three persons. One God, three persons. One in essence. The Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is declaring to be God. The second person of the Trinity. So he asks them, which of the good works that I've done would you stone me for? 
And they say, we're not stoning you for the works. How ironic is it that you charge God? The worship team recited, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How ironic that they would stone Jesus, the Son of God, for blasphemy. We're not stoning you for any of the works. We're stoning you for this. Because you, a mere man, make yourself to be God. Jesus is actually not guilty of that. If he's guilty of anything, he's guilty of the reverse. He was God and made himself a man. Now, Jesus is a really interesting argument. I've really tried to wrap my mind around this. You, that you are God's part. You, no, none of you understood that. If you did, I should welcome you up here and we'll have a little interaction. But I did study it. He says, is it not written in your law? Which would have been Jesus' law too, but there's a little barb there. He's saying, do you guys know the word? And they'll say, yes, we do. He says, okay, you know the word. Isn't it written there? I said, you are God's small g. What? What is Jesus talking to you about? He's basically saying, aren't you familiar with a verse in the Old Testament where humans are called small g gods? Look it up. Psalm 82, 6. You can find it. It's probably a reference to human judges who were tasked with dispensing justice. In popular language of the day, lowercase g, gods. I'm not comfortable with calling our judges gods, but they must have been comfortable with it back then. In the Old Testament, some human beings were called gods and nobody picked up stones to kill them. So Jesus is saying, why are you doing that to me? Now Jesus is not implying that he's a mere mortal. That's not the way this argument's going. This is a lesser to greater argument. This is if you're okay with a scripture, with a psalm that refers to humans as God. If it was okay in Old Testament times for people who were mere mortals to be called gods, how much more legit is it for the one who is God incarnate to be called God? That's his argument. I'm not going to do any more than that, or I'll really confuse myself and you. Jesus was not a mere man making himself a God. He was God and left his glory and set aside his glory and set aside his, he left his throne and became a man. Why? To save us to save sinners, to become the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The Scripture tells us that he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
Jesus is not guilty of being a man who's making himself God. What he's guilty of is God making himself man so that he might save us. At the heart of Christian belief is the concept that Jesus being made man and then his death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Can I say that again? At the heart of Christian belief is that the death of Jesus somehow, some way, has made us right with God and given your life a brand new start. C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's belief. Now, a few more minutes, because I want to talk for just a few more minutes about the privileges of those who believe. The privileges of those who believe. The supreme privileges of those who believe. So in application, I just want to talk about, if you believe, these are the supreme privileges that you get. Three. The supreme privileges of those who believe are, first, they're called. Second, they're gifted. Third, they're secured. And I'm just going to briefly touch on these things. I intended only to touch on these things briefly, but I want you to see these things because, man, do they, they warm your soul. Supreme privileges of those who believe. First, they are called. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. My sheep come when I call them. Who are the ones who believe? They are the ones that Christ has called. And when you heard his voice, you came to him. Some came running. Some came a little more slowly. Some came limping. Some, some came and then got, didn't get all the way there and ran back a little bit. And then came, we came. Why? Because he called us. If he has called you, you're going. You're on your way. You heard him. How did you hear him? I don't know. Everybody's got a different story. But you heard God. If, if you are a believer today, at some point, something happened. And you heard God call you. Did you hear his audible voice? I don't know. But something was happening. You were reading the Bible or a friend was sharing the gospel with you or you were listening to a preacher or you were watching something. You were at a Young Life camp. You, I don't know. But at some point, you heard God calling you, and you started to follow him. That's one of the supreme privileges of those who believe. I've had dreams, weird dreams. Dreams are always weird, almost always. But I've had these dreams, uh, and the only way I can describe them is that God was calling me. Like, like 
prominent religious leaders, uh, like I had this wondering where I was, I was, this was before I was really following Jesus, that this prominent religious leader um, called a payphone. And there was a bunch of people standing around, and someone picked up the payphone, and they said, is there a Kenny here? And I grabbed hold of the phone, and I started to talk to this, like, prominent religious leader. What's the interpretation of the dream? I don't know. I'm not putting a lot of stock in it, but I'll tell you how I thought of it. God was calling me on the phone. The call of Christ has brought you, if you're in Christ, his call has brought you into a new relationship with Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I know you. Jesus knows you. You're not just a number. He knows you. He's got a nickname for you. Listen to last week's sermon. And the relationship that you have with him in turn leads to a new lifestyle. What do I mean? Those that he calls, he says, follow me. What do they do? They follow. It's a new lifestyle. So, you might ask yourself this. As you think about the supreme privileges of those who believe, and the first one being called, the proof of faith is something. What is the proof of your faith? It's that you follow Jesus. I did not say it's what you do to get Jesus. You don't earn Jesus. Jesus calls you, and then your response is, I'm going to follow him. What's that following look like? Loving obedience. Only he who truly obeys believes. Only he who truly obeys believes. Are you obeying Jesus? Then there's, that's a, uh, can be a very good indicator that you actually are believing him. Are you in disobedience to Jesus? It could be an indicator that you haven't yet started on that journey of following him. Or it could be an indicator that you are like the rest of us, just battling the presence of sin that remains. But Only he who truly obeys. I did not say perfectly obeys. I said truly believes. Truly obeys. Not perfectly obeys. Truly obeys is an indication of belief. That first supreme privilege of those who believe is that they're called. The second is they're gifted. What does Jesus give them? What does Jesus give you? Verse 28. I give them, I'm not making, I'm getting this right from here. I'm not just up here standing up here making this stuff up. I'm taking it right out of God's word. Jesus says, I give them. What does he give them? You guys are saying it's so, like what he said, whatever he's giving you is worth more than the whisper I just heard. What does he say that he's giving you? I give them what? Look in the word. Eternal life is what you get. I, you know, we're talking supreme privileges here. No one can top this one. All who believe Jesus will live. New life in the kingdom is yours. You're no longer part of this passing world. Aren't you grateful for that? There ought to be more smiling. <laughs> 
more crying, more shouting. You don't live under the dying kingdom of sin and death any longer. Jesus plucked you out, and now you live under the kingdom, the rule, and the reign of Christ and grace. Praise Him. And how long do you get to live there? Forever. It doesn't get any better than that, guys. You're no longer part of a temporary world. You're part of God's permanent crew. Supreme privileges. They're called. They're gifted. Last one. i got to mention this one. God used, John used, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a word that grabbed me when I read this. It was the word snatch. Two times used it. Did you, did you hear it? Like, what is that word snatch? It's so vivid. I love the Bible for that reason. Such a vivid picture. What does he say about the word snatched? No one who believes will be snatched away from God. Aren't you thankful for that? Do I need to say more? I will. Jesus' people are his possession. He holds you in his hand. And if you are held in the hands of God, then no thing and no one is going to be able to wrestle you out of his hand. I love that. No one's going to snatch you. He's committed himself to them, even for their own part, who have however weakly committed themselves to him. Who's going to snatch you? What is going to snatch you? I and the Father are one. All the forces of opposition and destruction have to confront the awesome and lipidness power of the Father who is greater than all. Nothing's going to move you. Illustration. Strong father. Walking with a three-year-old. You picture it. along a dangerous railroad track. The father has two ways that I can think of in protecting his three-year-old son. He can reach out with his hand, and he can say, Son, see my hand? Grab hold of it. Grab hold of me and hold on for all you're worth. Because if you let go of me, you could fall down onto the railroad tracks and be killed. That's one way. Or he could say, Son, give me your hand. And then he grabs a hold of it. And he says, I'm going to hold on to you while we walk by this treacherous railroad track. I ask you, which is the surer method? There is no profounder security conceivable than when Jesus says, give me your hand. I'm going to hold 
on to you. You're not holding on to Jesus. Jesus is holding on to you. And if Jesus had us a hold of you, who is going to get you out of his hand? Nothing. May have the band return. I'll just end. I'll just end with a quote. You guys know I love J.C. Ryle. Sometimes I read his quotes and I think, oh, I could just kind of paraphrase that. I'm not going to paraphrase this. I'm just going to end with it. Listen. Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier. And none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. These beliefs, these beliefs and these supreme benefits will not automatically remain alive in the mind. you got to feed them. How do you do that? You come to church on Sundays. You gather in community. You read your Bible. You pray. you got to keep feeding these things, church. Don't stop believing.